After years of legal fights, a historic South Florida theater gets new life. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. The Coconut Grove Playhouse has been closed and sitting abandoned for more than 15 years. A legal battle between the city of Miami and the county left the future in doubt. Now that legal fight is over and the Playhouse has a bright future. Also, Books and Books is a South Florida institution linked to the annual Miami Book Fair. This year, it celebrates 40 years. We'll talk with founder Mitch Kaplan. And finally, there's a new Father of the Bride movie with a Cuban twist. We don't want a Catholic wedding. What are you talking about? You can officiate then. My guide, Monica, from the Zen Center, New York. So a yoga class is set up a wedding. Hey, caramba. It's starring Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan, and it's set in Miami. We'll talk with the director. All of that today on Sundial after the news. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. Hello and welcome to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're in Coconut Grove, between Charles Avenue and Main Highway, you'll see a stately old building. It went up in 1927 as a movie house. Then 30 years later, it opened as a live theater. It's the Coconut Grove Playhouse. Since the late 1950s, it's played host to performances like Neil Simon's The Sunshine Boys and Fame the Musical. It's been shuttered since 2006, and since then, the building had been at the center of a legal fight between the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County. Now, the city has dropped its efforts to continue that fight. So, what happens now? Well, joining me is County Commissioner Raquel Regalado. The Playhouse is in her district. Commissioner, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you for talking about this uh, this item. Absolutely. Thank you. And I want to, you know, I want to ask folks who live in that area. What should happen next? What do you want to see happen? You could text in your, your thoughts, 786-677-0767. Again, that's 786-677-0767. Or you can message us on Facebook. That's WLRN Sundial. So, Commissioner, I, I, you know, this is a big issue from when you took office. And I, I wondered, what has been the most spirited, the most passionate arguments you've heard about keeping well, that playhouse going? Yeah, well, well, first and foremost, as you know, um, I was actually against the county plan when I was elected and I spent the first three months working with the architects and county staffs to see what we could change, how we can soften the plan. We added a pocket park to the back and spent a lot of time with the residents that live around the area. Uh, because as you mentioned, so many years have passed that this has been in litigation. I was also able to get the Board of County Commissioners to allow me to settle the case with the city of Miami. Um, and the city of Miami has decided not to move forward because three commissioners voiced uh, their opinions in not wanting uh, to take this any further. We've been negotiating them with some t uh, for some time. I think the majority of people just want to see something. You know, it's been shuttered for so long, as I mentioned to the city commission uh, and to the press. We've had so many break-ins. People break in through the roof. There's been a lot of damage. Post-Surfside, I alerted everyone that we do have structural issues with the front of the building, which is the historic part that we want to preserve. Um, and I was very concerned about our ability to preserve it and this concept so, of demolition by neglect. Go go back to you know what you were first originally thinking about what should happen to this place. What did you want to see, and how has that evolved over time? 
Well, at first I had been told, you know, by a lot of the residents that it was keep all of the playhouse or nothing, you know, um, that the historical board that had been their position as a, as a county commissioner, I was able to tour the inside of the building and actually see what was being preserved and what was not being preserved and why. Um, and I was also able to make some design changes with Arquitectonica so that the addition actually looks like what is there now, which I think is important. It's an homage, you know, to what is there currently. And we were able to change the back so that the West Grove has connectivity to the playhouse. You know, when I was a school board member, I was actually on the board of the playhouse. Um, and one of the things that I worked on was the restoration of Miami High. And a lot of the things that I learned in that project, kind of making the old, making the new look like the old, and what we can and cannot preserve is what I brought to this project when we kind of reset it a little. And the community really responded to it. We met with the stakeholders, we, made, we met with the neighbors, and we really got the majority of people to agree that this was the best thing for the area at this moment. You know, a lot of the folks that want a thousand seat theater, these are the same people that were complaining about the hotel on Charles Street bringing 50 people. So which is it, you know? Um, and the parking lot can only take 300 plus uh, spaces. So we know that there, there, there has to be a connection between the spaces and the size. And then also we have the Adrian Arch. The county now is going to be redoing uh, the Miami-Dade um, um uh, the Miami-Dade Auditorium, uh, the city of Miami is going to be doing the James L. Knight. So we have a lot of big spaces uh, where people put on large productions, and we've invested a lot of money in those. This is a smaller community theater. I was also able to work with Gable Stage. They agreed to sign an MOU to bring in a little um Little Carver and Baby Tucker. We're very excited about the educational programming that we're going to have now in the Playhouse. So Gable Stage, which will become Grove Stage, is very different from what it was a few years ago. All right, and I'm going to talk about that where it goes from here. But yes. what stopped? What ended the fight? What you know? What finally well, for the city to say, okay, let's you know, because there's this legal battle going on for a while. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the legal battle had nothing to do with the building and everything to do with a Jennings violation, which is a law that says that when an elected official meets with parties in a quasi judicial that they have to provide that those meetings occurred. So the case was really not about the playhouse. It was about a violation of Jennings and the city had appealed it. And what I did, I'm a litigator, you know, I worked with our team here. The city was concerned that this would have a long term implication on their ability um, to have to deal with quasi judicial matters. So we actually scaled back a lot of our arguments and, and met with them and presented something uh, that would only impact this particular case. And the ruling that we got from the appellate court actually wasn't even a written opinion. So it was perfect for the city. The city could no longer make the argument that uh, this was going to impact their ability to deal with quasi judicial. This was now just about the playhouse. And what were they going to do? Appeal it to the Supreme Court? You know, it all got a little ridiculous towards the end it was clearly about just getting gaining more time and every time that we met with the mayor and with other folks you know the issue of Jennings wasn't the issue it was other things that they wanted to and change about the project was that the reason why this has been sitting like this for a while since 2006 it's just been sitting there is that the, are these the reasons why nothing has happened all this time 
there, I think there's been a lot of politicians involved with different ideas and different groups over time. I think everyone feels strongly about this property and had a different vision for it. Um, you know, I'm a litigator and this was a compromise. And one of the things that we always tell folks about a compromise is that everyone is equally unhappy. But in this case, so much time past that I think everyone just wants the playhouse to reopen and they want to ensure that we can save the front part of the building. Um, and that and was, that's and, what we got to. And by the way, so let's go, let's come back to, you know, what this fight was about, it, what to do with the building. So you had what, and clarify for me here is that you had one side 300 saying. 300 seats versus, right, 300 seats versus a thousand seats. Okay. That's really what it all came down to. All how right. big was the, how big was the venue going to be? Is it going to be the original theater, you know, that was much smaller or the expanded movie theater, which was a thousand seats? And so what is it going to be now? It's going to be the 300 seats. It's okay. going to be the smaller community theater. Gotcha. Again, talking with Miami-Dade County Commissioner Raquel Regalado, talking about the latest news on the Coconut Grove Playhouse, this historic theater, as I mentioned, closed since 2006. A lot of legal fights over the years, but now moving forward, and as we just heard, it's going to be the 300-seat theater, and we'd love to hear from you. You live in the area. You have history with this place. Maybe you've got a story you'd love to share, your favorite experience in that theater when it was open, or you know, you'd like to share with us what you want to see moving forward. Find us on Facebook at WLRN Sundial. Uh, Commissioner, what's the story on the parking garage? Because you were talking about parking. parking. You know, one of the one of the things that we tried to explain to folks is that even though the city of Miami sued us on the theater park, they may refuse to make changes to the parking garage. The parking garage is by the Miami Parking Authority and the city would not make it bigger than the 300 plus uh, spaces. Right. So the folks that were talking about a thousand seat theater and 300 spaces, that was chaotic for the neighborhood um, and, and particularly for Main Highway, right? So the, the parking garage was never an issue. The issue was the historic building um, and the, the county's ability to move forward with that project. So that's not going to change. Uh, we are working with them. Uh, now we submit our permits, you know, that the first part of that is, you know, we got to clean out the building. Then we got to... Um, check for asbestos because of the age of the building. Um, and then we're going to shore up the front. Uh, we're very concerned about the structural integrity of the front of the building, and we've been waiting to do that. So we've already uh, submitted our permits, and we're waiting for the city to get back to us on those so that we can start as soon as possible and secure the building. Is there a goal as to when you want to see this opened and open for business, ready to go? Well, you know, one of the things that I've been speaking to the stakeholders about in the last uh, year and a half is that I would love to reopen the theater for its 98th anniversary so that we could move towards preparing its centennial. Um, I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. It all depends on, you know, the permits and, and how, you know, we can move forward with the restoration. Uh, we have a timeline and we're going to do everything in our power uh, to do it as quickly as possible. Um, and also to make sure that we don't impact the residents, right? So one of the things about the parking lot that's important is that we're going to use it for staging so we don't take up the street. Uh, so I'm, I'm shooting for uh, the middle of the 98th year. So, All right. um, so that's a, it's a few, two or three years. Yeah, it's a few years away. Obviously, the, yeah. the centennial would be 2027. Um, my understanding is that there's a partnership between 
Florida International University and Gable. You mentioned Gable Stage on managing we, this. Yes, and it becomes Grove Stage. So Gable Stage now, you know, Joe Adler uh, passed away. There's a new executive director, Barry Newport, who's wonderful. She's really changed a lot of what Gable Stage is doing. Gable Stage now becomes Grove Stage, and they're going to be a lot more involved with the local schools. Barry's been wonderful. You know, Gable Stage just had its first comedy. Uh, that's something that was unheard of uh, a few years ago. So we're very excited about their board, about the folks that are participating, and including beyond Shakespeare, uh, that they've always done in our schools. Now we're going to be adding other educational components and bringing theater to the schools in the Grove. And we're also in the in the pocket park. It actually has an outdoor uh, theater area where we're going to be doing presentations for the schools too. And they're running the educational program that you mentioned earlier. Yes. Yes. I see. You know what? Just I mean, again, the all of this we've been waiting in so many fights and all this debate and conversation. You know, for you, when you finally heard that, okay, we can move forward and we have a plan. Uh, I I don't know. What did you hear from the community at that point? And were they everyone has been everybody has been very excited. I mean, okay. people just want to move forward. I mean, this has been so drawn out. And by the way, you know, another thing that I added that I think is important is we're going to do an homage to Charlie Cinnamon. You know, we're going to do an art in public spaces. Uh, he started actually the arts festival by hanging clotheslines from the playhouse. So there's a lot of historical components that we're adding so that we honor, I, I get the nostalgia. We want to honor that nostalgia, right? But one of the things that I've talked about that's so important is an entire generation of Miamians have missed out um, on the Coconut Grove Playhouse. And that's why we want to just move forward, um, give it its place uh, in what is Miami-Dade County Theater. We have a lot of great establishments and we're excited about partnering with those folks and bringing theater back to the Grove. What, for you, Commissioner, why is this project such a passion? You know, um, when I was elected as a school board member, it was still closed, you know, and there was no end in sight. So many people have passed through this process and there's been so many ideas and so much litigation and the people who live around it, you know, the grove kind of dies when you get to that part. Uh, and it's very sad. So I was just glad that we can, you know, get to an end that we're going to be able to save um, the historic part of the building. I was really worried about it. Like I told you, we've had a lot of break-ins. We've had a lot of vandalism. Um, and every time that there's a hurricane season, you know, we're concerned that we're going to lose a part of that. It's one of our oldest buildings. I'm, I'm happy to be part of the preservation and I'm happy to have come up with a plan that uh, so many people are for. Uh, and I can't, I can't wait to get started. You know what? It is great to see that, uh, you know, something historic is going to get that chance to continue because it, as i mentioned before miami not always known for protecting its history we love to we love to build the next big thing you know so good, good to see this commissioner i really appreciate the time thank you so much no thank you again miami dade county commissioner raquel regalado talking about the coconut grove playhouse and its future and again you can always share with us find us on facebook wlrn sundial what you're excited about seeing and also if you if you have stories of things you've seen. Maybe you, you, you know, you remember back in the day when it was open. We'd love to hear those stories. And if you have photos, even better. We'd love to see those photos. Share it with us on Facebook. Well, still to come, we're going to look back on 40 years of where else? Books and books.
Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. If you could believe it, Books and Books in Miami is celebrating its 40th birthday this year. It's a great place for all kinds of things, like author events. We had a, a Sundial discussion there with the Sundial Book Club. We talked to author Craig Pittman. It's become one of those places in South Florida where the community just loves to gather. Creatives go there to write in the courtyard. Uh, folks will go there to see live bands, perhaps on a first date. So how did founder Mitchell Kaplan create a place like this and how it's lasted so long in a city with, you know, that's got a reputation for change? Well, he joins us now. Mitch, great to have you back on the program. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. It's always wonderful to speak with you at any time. You know what? I, I would sing happy birthday, but I was told I'm never allowed to sing on air. So just happy <laughs> birthday. 40 years. I want to know. Take me back to that moment, the first one, the first Books and Books. Well, the very first Books and Books opened in 1982. Uh I was teaching high school English at the same time, and uh, we opened a very small store right across the street from where our main store is now. It was five or 600 square feet. Um, but from the beginning, um, people really responded. Uh, we opened our doors and people came in. The world was very different back in 1982. 50% <laughs> you know, of all books bought were bought in independent bookstores. You know, I know for some of the listeners out there, it's hard to imagine a time prior to the internet, prior to cell phones, prior to faxes, prior to computers. I mean, it was a whole kind of analog world that books fit right into that analog world. Uh, if you ever wanted to find something out, you needed to find out about it in a book. So one of the things we did from the beginning is we had a very big uh, collection of books on the arts, art, architecture, design. Uh, the University of Miami School of Architecture was just starting, and we decided to carry those books. And in my thinking, I thought, you know, people will look at, look at those books and then pick up a bestseller. But what was beginning to happen is people were picking up those art books as well and those design books. Yeah. So that's a big part of our DNA. What were, what were some of the challenges that you faced in those early days? Well, the, the biggest challenges really were um, over the last 40 years, the challenges really became all of the change in culture uh, so, and, and the change in retail. And so I think, you know, in many ways, bookstores were the canaries in the coal mine. So you first had the discounters come, and then you had the superstores come, and then you had um, the online stores with Amazon, and then you and others. And then, of course, you had the digital books. Will the physical books still be around? So the, the death of the bookstore was always being talked about. Uh, it was grueling, to say the least. Um, the other thing that was difficult being the kind of bookstore that we wanted to be, which was the, the the bookstore that carried literary titles. And, you know, we wanted to make it a meeting place and have authors coming in. And uh, Miami was not viewed much as a city in which uh, very serious reading went on. So when we would request authors in the early days, you know, the publishers in New York would often go, well, you know, we have this, we have this new non-prescription drug book coming and we'd be happy to bring that author down. Or we have uh, 
you know, something dealing with vitamins or health or that sort of thing. And I knew, and I was very confident because I knew what people were buying. And the sophistication of the Miami community was always here. We just didn't have very good PR. <laughs> yeah. Well, Miami, Miami had an image, especially in the early 80s. And it was, you know, but it, very different from what it is today. But, you know. Well, the image, the image was, you know, the image of Miami as being a fun and sun capital, you know, was very much twisted in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. We had this whole idea of paradise lost, right? So you had the idea of a very bleak place. In fact, uh, you know, Nick Griffin, who I know you've had on, had a, had a wonderful book called Year of Dangerous Days, and it's about Miami in 1980. Yeah, I recommend it because it really paints a wonderful picture of what that was like going in and opening a store at that time. But, was, but I can tell you what was really cool is that there were a bunch of people like me. I was in my 20s. You know, you had the beginning of the film festival at that time. You had the beginning of the art gallery scene that was beginning to happen. Um, the beginning of the foodie world, people opening up restaurants and Miami cuisine. And this was all before Miami Vice and all before Art Deco being kind of a thing. Um, Listen, so, Mitch, you just said something that made me, I was like, I, I wish I knew a, a Mitchell Kaplan in his twenties. <laughs> I wish I met that guy. Um, when did you when did you start uh, get the, when the decision to expand and open up other other books and books around the area? Oh, what happened is, you know, I grew up. I think I've told you, I grew up on Miami Beach, and I, you know, Lincoln Road hadn't really started to take off at all. In fact, there was only one or two. You know, restaurants there. Lincoln Road was pretty, pretty much a sad place in the mid '80s, toward the late '80s. And in 1988, I'll never forget. I was walking down uh, Lincoln Road with Kathy Leff, who was Mickey Wolfson's, um, who worked executive director for all of Mickey Wolfson's stuff. And Mickey Wolfson owned a building on Lincoln Road. It was the uh, a beautiful, beautiful building, an old kind of deco building. And I walked down Lincoln Road and, and, and Kathy said, you know, you ought to be on Lincoln Road. And I said, well, if we can be in that building, I would. And it was, her building was kind of rented. Mm. And if we could get that space, I would love to move in. And she called me about two months later saying that space was available. So I did it. And we moved in in 1989 when it was really young on Lincoln Road. Not a whole lot going on. We were in the Sterling building, this beautiful building. But but I, I guess the story is, and the, the exciting thing for me as a young person, was having a seat at the table in which the community you grew up in, not only Miami Beach, but all of Miami, was remaking itself and watching it remake itself. And over the 40 years, watching Miami go through its you know, it's growing pains and then becoming more mature and making some of the same mistakes that it made when I was a kid growing up has just been so fascinating and so interesting. Well, me. I mean, you could write one of the, you could do the documentary or you could write a big history of Miami since you've been watching it. You have stores now throughout and, you know, you get the shop down in Key West, but here in Miami and, um, I wanted to ask you, what's the uh, the deal with the one at the Arch Center? Well, we hope to be open soon there. 
we're 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 planning. Uh, we hope to be open late summer, early fall. Okay. With a kind of new concept. We're working that out now. And you know, I I love being on that part of um, you know that part of Miami. And you know, it was a bookstore and a restaurant. And so I think some some exciting things will happen with that. I mean, that goes back to what you were just saying. Look, you, I mean, and you've you've seen it all, right? You had the discount stores, you had the big box stores, you have Amazon. So the book industry just keeps changing. What do you think it is that that is going to drive people back in? It's not just the books, you know. What else is it? Do you think? Well, you know, the the cool thing is that good indie bookstores have always been kind of like third places. So you said it in your introduction. It's not just our store, but good indie bookstores are places that people want to come after they've been to work or at home. They want to get out of the house. They want to, they want to, you know, interact with other people. You know, Miami is a car culture. Mm-hmm. There aren't a lot of meeting places. So a good bookstore can be that. And I think that will never go away. Um, I think that will always be an important part of what we as humans want to do, which is have human contact. And there's no better place to do it than in a than in a kind of quiet, you know, sanctuary of books. And, you know, the, the other thing is that with all of the threats that books have had over the years, it's still one of the most perfect kind of purveyors of information and and an art, you know, between the pages of a book, I mean, it, between the covers of a book. So it's very hard to replicate that. Yeah. No, no. I'm I'm still holding on as much as I can uh, because, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it is special. It has, it, it, there's a, there's something important about being able to flip those pages. Again, I'm talking with Mitchell Kaplan, founder of Books and Books, co-founder of the Miami Book Fair. And as we mentioned, Books and Books celebrating 40 years this year here in Miami. And we'd love to share with us your favorite books and books experience. Maybe it was an author. You met a poetry moment, maybe something you fell in love at the, at the, the store, you know, one night while you're there, you had a drink and the band was playing. Find us on social media, WLRN Sundial. We'd love to hear from you. Um, do you think about it? Is there, I know 40 years of so many moments and it's not a fair question, but is there one that really jumps out at you, Mitch? I can't say there's one, but you know, the things that, you know, bring me such, you know, such great memories are, particularly after 40 years, is, you know, meeting young people who started out in the store and now seeing them, you know, with their with their kids and sometimes with their grandkids. Wow. Uh, and carrying that all on and telling me how meaningful it was. I mean, there are some some interesting things that happened. You know, I taught high school English, I told you before. Mm-hmm. One of my students came in uh, to 10th grade with a fully formed novel. Her name was, is Tanana Reeve Du. And Tanana Reeve, after leaving high school and college, went on to write for the Miami Herald. But then she's had this amazing career in books. So I've been able to present her at the bookstore a number of times. Mm-hmm. That was really gratifying. But also thinking back, you know, the longer you live, the more you realize you've you become a historical, mm-hmm. you know, you, you you live through history. 
So when I think of some of the early writers that came into the bookstore and people that I was able to meet, whether it's Isaac Singer, Allen Ginsberg, or, um, uh, you know, it goes on, on and on and on, John Cage, you know, just people that like Norman Mailer, Ken Kesey, um, just, it's just been so rich, you know, for someone who was an English major like me, and as somewhat of an author junkie, um, I couldn't imagine a better road that I traveled, even though it was a road not traveled by a lot of folks, but it was a road that I loved. I was so, I'm so blessed to have gone down. You know, I think about, you go to any major city, and, and or at least I think about the ones I've been to, and there is that one independent store. There's, there's always a lot, but there's that one that everybody talks about. There's that one you gotta go to. I think about like, the tattered is it the tattered book? I think, I, I think tattered cover in Denver. Tattered, yeah. In Denver, and that was one of them. I remember. That, what is it? Is it Powell's books? I think in Portland. Powell's is in Portland. Yeah. yeah. So you, there's a, it, see, a lot of cities have that one place. So obviously Miami, it, it's books and books. People know that. What do you think about that legacy? Do you ever think about that? Do you think about what you've created? And, and oh, I'm very proud of it. You know, I'm really proud of what we've been able to. But I also recognize that. It's a reflection of Miami. The fact that Miami has a bookstore that they've supported the way they have ours for 40 years puts the lie to so much about Miami. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The same with the Miami Book Fair. I mean, the Miami Book Fair is developed, and next year will be the 40th Miami Book Fair. We can get back on and talk about that. Uh, we definitely but, will. You know, the Miami Book Fair, you know, uh, really started all of the contemporary book fairs that you see all over the country. And the fact that this came from Miami, a place that everybody underestimated and still do, you know, people still underestimate Miami. But I can tell you, you know, we just opened in Coconut Grove and it's booming. I mean, it's booming with people who come from out of town. It's booming with locals. And, and what's so thrilling to me at all the stores now is to watch younger people rediscovering place and discovering bookstores. Mm -hmm. There used to be a, a kind of a um, a kind of a, a, a gallows humor thing that indie bookstores would say when the idea was that only breeders were old and it was that we were going to follow our customers to the grave. <laughs> but, but that's not true anymore. I yeah. mean, I'm young people more than I ever have. And they're, and they're rediscovering the sense of community that a place gives them and that what a bookstore gives them. Now, you know, every time I have you on, we never leave without asking the question, what are you reading right now or what do you want to read? Well, you know, I just finished an amazing book um, by a guy named Hernan Diaz. It's called Trust, T-R-U-S-T. And it's really about a lot. It's about American <laughs> mythology, particularly around money and finance. It's a novel. And it it takes place, the main character is a financier in the 20s who built up a huge fortune mysteriously. Not, you know, not his 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 investing techniques were mysterious and, and looked up to. And uh Hernan, what he does is he takes you through the 20s. And through the collapse, you know, and then into the 30s, and he does it in a very unusual way. He does it through four distinct narrative techniques. So the book is made up of a 
a um, a novel based on that character. It's also you then read a kind of self-published memoir that that character was doing, and then you read a memoir that was written by a real writer who, when she was a young girl, helped that guy write his self-published. Oh my gosh! Memoir. And then the big kicker, and I don't want to give a spoiler thing, is you you then read the journal, the hidden journal of this character's wife. All right, we're putting and it up on the. It's a really fantastic book. No, no, it's um, like you said, it sounds oh, like everything. Yeah, we, no, it's it's a big, big, and, and yet it's not experimentally written. It's a it's non academic. It's a real engaging, engaging uh, story. Myth- uh, so we'll, yeah. no, no, we'll share that up on our social media. I got a, I mean, I got a list of books that I have to read, but you you sold me on it, Mitch. Happy birthday. Congratulations on oh, this. This is fantastic you. for you. I really, and for you all know, of us. You guys and WLRN, you guys have, and WLRN has been with us for all 40 years. I, we were from the very, very early days, and you've been such a great supporter as well. Well, And I look forward to sharing a coffee <laughs> in this store with you in your next trip in. Let's raise that cup of coffee for another 40 years, sir. That's great. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you. Again, Mitchell Kaplan, founder of Books and Books, co-founder of the Miami Book Fair. Again, the Books and Books celebrating 40 years in Miami. Still to come, a Mexican groom and a Cuban bride get married in Miami. And that's the plot of the movie Father of the Bride. We're going to talk to the director next. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Luis Hernandez. All right, Miami is the setting for this new movie. It's starring Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan. Fathers play a big role in their daughter's life. It's a special bond that only they share. Hello. And even when she's all grown up, she's still daddy's little girl. That is Father of the Bride. It is a remake of the other two films, right? Remember Father of the Bride, 1991, with Steve Martin and Diane Keaton, and then it was the 1950 version with Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor. In this new version, there's a Latin twist. So the main family is Cuban. The family of the groom-to-be is Mexican. But the story is almost the same. A young woman comes from college, comes home from college, surprises her family that she's engaged. And then the father has to accept the reality that his daughter's grown up and moving on. Gary Gaz Alasraki is the director of the film. He also directed the Mexican comedy Nosotros los Nobles. And he co-created and directed Club de Cuervos. That's the first Spanish series on Netflix. He joins us now. Gary, great to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I got to start with, you know, one of my favorite parts of the movie. And it's a key part of all the Father of the Bride movies, of course, and it's the moment that the father finds out that the daughter's engaged. Let's take a I'm listen. engaged! Oh, congratulations, baby! And I propose. Wow. You propose? You propose? You propose? Yes. You propose to him. Mm-hmm. He didn't propose to you. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Does anyone do that? <laughs> so she proposes to the guy. And then, of course, the, the father reacts like many Cuban Hispanic men might, you know, respond. But, Gary, what, what, what's the, the story behind the decision to take the story differently this time? 
I guess that the first question is, what does it look like to be a father of the bride in today's era where we've had so many social revolutions where women don't want to be infantilized and they don't want to be regarded as daddy's little girl. And, um, and then the second thing is that we were actually trying to take on a look uh, at machismo, which is much more characteristic of like these Spanish descendant Latin American Catholic households where the man really is the man of the house and, and all of that kind of, faces some pushback once you're in you're in the US and and your kids have grown up here. So mm. um when when we were trying to put that at the centerpiece of the story it just felt like we wanted everything to push back against what Billy was used to, you know, and certainly his daughter proposing could be one of the things. And we wanted we wanted the groom to be the complete new definition of masculinity versus the old school definition of masculinity. So it, it was all part of trying to build up this mysterious groom as someone that, that Billy could wholeheartedly hate from the beginning. <laughs> it is, it's fun to watch. I mean, having seen the film, it is fun to watch how you see the, the differences between generations. How do you feel about, you know, reboots or remakes? Because this is, as I mentioned, there's the 1991 version and the 1950 version, you know, you know, coming back and trying to bring the story back, but modernizing. I don't know. How do you, as a, as a writer, how do you feel about that? I feel, uh, well, two ways. First of all, like, don't touch anything. You don't think you have something new to say, right? Like, there are just moments where the original is perfect and don't touch it unless you feel you can say something new. Um, and at the same time, Nosotros Los Nobles is a remake from a Luis, Buñe, a Luis Buñuel film from 1942, which was El, El Gran Calavera, The Great Madcap. Um, so, you know, that, that film was fantastic, but the way that they portrayed alcoholism and, and just so much information that we have today made that plot unplausible today. And um, but the the message was good, so it was worth re revisiting. So I feel that's I guess that's how I feel about it. Um, I I still have a nostalgia for the the era of the spec scripts, where new ideas could break into Hollywood and just create new moments in culture. I think that is something that we are desperately in need to to create again. And I hope it happens. Do you think that, you know, that doing remakes and, and which, you know, it, it sometimes bringing back a story, uh, but with a twist, it's going to give you a chance to reach new audiences. But do you think because it just I want to play off what you just said is, you know, here you have this story, but the twist is it's a Cuban family. The groom-to-be is from a Mexican family. So now we get to see this story from obviously the Latino story. Um, do you think that it, it remakes, reboots, that's the way we're going to show an American, a non-Latino audience our story? I say our story because I am one of them. But <laughs> I, I don't know. What do you think? I think that it's, it's, a it's a good shortcut to get properties greenlit. Um, the, we're in an era where studios kind of feel better covered when they're doing IP filmmaking as opposed to genre filmmaking. If, if you look at the 80s and 90s, it was an era of trying new things like The Terminator, 
credit or mm-hmm. total recall. Like these were original ideas, right? And and now we're remaking them, rebooting them, revisiting them because the the experience for the studios as far as having an audience show up to the movie theaters has not been good when it comes to unknown uh, IP. And if you kind of go with an IP, it's a safer way to go. So for the studio system, it seems to be that that's just the zeitgeist right now. And and we're seeing it, you know, women's Ghostbusters, Eugenio Derbez in Overboard. Um, like just it's IP, what men want, you know, it's revisiting IP under a new race, gender or ethnicity. Yeah. So and just for I, people, people who don't know, by the way, you talk about IP, you talk about intellectual property. Uh, yes. filmmaking sorry you know, just so people know you're right but you know what one of the things i enjoyed a lot about this and i'm a big fan of the 1991 version but what i enjoyed about this is one you tackle uh class class differences but also it shows how latinos are not this monolithic group you have a cuban family and a mexican family and there's a tension because there's there's differences between us all, and sometimes there's tensions between you know between Mexicans and Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Ecuadorians, Colombians, Venezuelans, etc. And it could be it could be really funny sometimes. Of course, I mean, I think that that was one of the key opportunities that drew me to the project. You have um, a major studio like Warner Brothers willing to put a magnifying glass on what used to be just a monolithic community, the Latinx. Uh, and here we had a chance to say, first of all, there are many nationalities that are Latinos in the U.S. and we're not the same. And the second of all is that there is a difference between being Latin American and a Latino, you know, that grew up in the U.S. Yeah. So so just having a platform where to say that felt like a really delicious opportunity. And that kind of drew us to make uh, Chloe Feynman the wedding planner so that she could be the white American girl in the room who couldn't tell the difference at the beginning, you know? I, I have to applaud. She did a fantastic job. And I know that, you know, she's filling shoes of, you know, Martin Short, which was, you know, I mean, Martin Short. But she did a, a fantastic job with that. And, uh, you know, just overall, one thing that I did want to ask you is when you are telling these stories, how do you do it so that you're careful not to turn it into a meme that, you know, the stereotypes Though they can be funny, you also don't want to take it too far, make it a caricature. So I, I think that the the way to, that I went about it is that I, I always like to accentuate uh, uh, like a blind flaw in the characters, you know, and that has to be universal. So um, in, in, in Nosotros los Nobles, it would be really about this spoiled kid who's obsessed with finding the best business and become the new entrepreneur that's kind of universal so it, it sidesteps the cliche of a of a junior douchebag you know mm. um and with with andy you know uh, with billy's character we were up his blind obsession was how he made his fortune and how he came to this country with nothing which is an immigrant story and it's not necessarily a latino story so by by finding these particular personal archetypes you kind of you you kind of veer away from the caricature of of what do we imagine a Latino person to be, you know? Any of the characters, you know, based on family members or people you know? Um, 
not necessarily, but my mom was a bit of this like old old school mother who in my wedding kind of just said to my wife and I, you know, this is not just your wedding. This is our wedding as well. And <laughs> we lost our shit. We, we, it became a fight all the way to the wedding day, you know, and, and yet the wedding day was wonderful. And today we're all a big family. And I feel like that's kind of a truth of, of what families are, you know, um, weddings are supposed to be these joyous occasions and yet they're fraught with conflict all the way to the, to the date, to the main event. So, so, <laughs> you know, the more sincere, I think you can make that the, the more relatable, I think that can be. We're talking with Gary Alasraki. He's the director of the new film, father of the bride. It's the remake of two others. The 1991 version with Steve Martin and the 1950 original with Spencer Tracy. This one stars Andy Garcia and Gloria Stefan. And it takes place in Miami. And it's, as we said, it's, it's Latin families. It's out Thursday streaming on HBO Max. Um, obviously, watching the film, one of the fun things is you can see all the different places you go in Miami. But how much of the film was filmed here? Um, we had 10 days here while we shot for a total of nine weeks. So uh, most of the interiors were in Atlanta and all the exteriors were in Miami. And it was important that we could capture what, Billy's Miami looks like, uh, you know, the Coconut Grove, Coral Gables yeah, and Miami Beach, as opposed to like the the more classical neon infused and postcard it, Miami. When you think of that, that's so interesting. So, I mean, it's a story that takes place here, yet most of it filmed in Georgia. Georgia is a big place for filmmakers. They have a lot of incentives. But it, is that what makes the decision? Is that what, what drives the decision? For movie studios, it's where the incentives are? Yeah, it's just how far the money runs, you know, and, and I'm not a line producer, so I don't know the intimate details of the economics, but apparently the the costs of just shooting without an incentive in Florida was so prohibitive that it made it a non-starter when they were doing the budgets. You're, you're considering union fees, you're considering the above the line fees of all the talent, you know. So once you're there, you have some so much money to go with and you want the production value to be worthwhile. So it just seems like it was all about the fiscal incentives that exist in Georgia versus the ones that don't exist in Florida. You know, I, I guess so. And, and when you're making a movie, I, I, I've always been curious, it, does that hurt the process? Does it make it more challenging for you? Because... You know, you're going to show up here for a little while, get what you need, and then go film the rest somewhere else. Does that make it more difficult for you, for the actors? Uh, it, it does and it doesn't. You know, I mean, ultimately, when you have more resources, you have more choices. So if you're in Atlanta and you need to throw green screens all over the place, you can do that and do it rather convincingly. But there's an organic aspect of the filmmaking where the the location informs the story and it frees up the camera to look into other directions without being afraid of adding a new visual effects and things like that, that might feel constraining when you don't know what it'll look like at the end. And could you devote all the time that you needed to get the right background shots so that it feels convincing? Yeah. You know, those, those things start to become a little bit intimidating and they, and they burn in the back of your head. So certainly some filmmakers don't go down that route. And for example, the Joker or just they forgoed all kinds of tax incentives and went to shoot in New York 
at the expense of fewer days and and a smaller shoot, but but it had that York in exchange. It had that feel. This movie, I'm going to say, did have the feel. Sometimes you could tell, or at least I don't know. I I tried to pick that, and I could tell this one. I felt like it. It felt like it was here. Um, I wanted to just as we finish up here. You had this successful run on Netflix with uh, Club de Cuervos, the the first Spanish series ever on the platform. But I wanted to know from you briefly, where's filmmaking going? Do we still have the theatrical experiences or everything is going to start going just on streaming? I have a strange intuition that the pendulum is to swing about to swing back to the screens again, given what we've seen in the last three months, right? For starters, during the pandemic, the studios really got a taste of the day and date release, and they really ran with that experiment completely unhinged. And... It felt for a while like it was promising, but suddenly you have this backswing from the pendulum where Netflix's stock just collapses and and they kick out AT&T and David Zaslav takes over Warner Brothers saying that they're going to go with more films than than the previous administration. And, uh, and suddenly you have Tom Cruise blowing up uh, <laughs> right. CinemaCon. Yeah. And and uh, and a new love being expressed between studios and and theaters. It's an experience. That, I mean, that we missed because of the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, and you start, and you start to feel like like everyone acknowledged that there's a special ranking for theatrical films that actually drive up the value of what comes to the platforms as a second window. Whereas if you're just dropping content on a streamer without treating it specially in some way, shape, or form, then you're not even building up a title. So at least in this case, HBO Max is is treating this film as if it was being released on a platform. We're doing press. We have all the everyone on tour. We have done screenings. This movie was mixed in the movie theater, even if it won't be screened theatrically. You have massive stars. You have a, an advertising campaign. You have one movie being released on the platform this month, you know, and they're treating it really special. So it's at least an experiment of raising yeah. the the awareness. All right. I've got to finish up here, but I got to ask you the question, you know, if your daughter shows up and says, I'm getting married, you never met the man. How would you react? <laughs> I would freak out. I would freak out. That was my way into the story. I would freak out. <laughs> it is a fun movie. Great remake, but it's a really fun movie. I love the Latin twist. Thank you so, so much, Gary. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for having us. Definitely. Gary Alasraki, again, director of the new film, Father of the Bride, the remake, out Thursday on HBO Max. Well, that's our program for this Tuesday, June 14th. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to be talking about immigration to the U.S., how the U.S. government is handling it. Uh, you know, they just had the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. What are Latin countries asking of us? Also, a talk with the hungry black man about the first ever Black Wine and Food Festival. All that tomorrow on the show. I'm Luis Hernandez. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Take care of each other. The program is made possible in part by support from Miami Cancer Institute. WLRN Public Media.